I saw a code like yours in a shop on King Street. There are all sorts of women's shops there. I could take you if you like. You have better things to spend your money on. You'd like this store. I'd like it better if it were in Mosul. If it were in Mosul, you couldn't see through the windows. It'd be boarded up. The boards will come down and the doors will open. And what will be left inside? Everything will be exactly as it was. You believe it too, you must. If you were so concerned, you wouldn't have left. Maybe I left because I'm so concerned. But the Americans... We don't know what the Americans are planning. Things disappear in war. Objects in museums vanish. You care so much for these objects. What about the people? The objects are part of the people. They're the deepest, hidden, most secret part. They're the best part and the most important part to protect. You're talking about love. Yes, I love them. I do. And your statue? The one you care so much about? Did you send it to Baghdad? We sent a great many. You said a great many people were concerned about it. We're concerned about every artifact. But you said it was special. They're all... Special to you. Yes. Is that your secret? That was an excerpt from the award-winning play Inanna by Michelle Lowe. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Michelle Lowe is a successful working playwright. Her plays have been produced in regional theaters throughout the country, as well as on and off Broadway. Writing musicals, as well as dramas, she's a hard playwright to peg. Her plays are very different from one another, in style as well as subject matter. But Michelle brings to all her work an observant eye, an imaginative curiosity, and a deep appreciation of the collaborative process. This combination has served her well. Her output is impressive both in quantity and quality. In 2009, she had not one, but two world premieres. Inanna was produced at the Denver Center Theater Company. It tells the story of an Iraqi museum curator and his attempt to protect his country's art before the war. Her second premiere was Victoria Musica, which debuted at the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Victoria Musica gives us the tale of a music critic who begins to suspect that the recordings of a world-famous cellist are all frauds. Both plays open to great acclaim. Michelle Lowe was a finalist for the 2009 Susan Smith Blackburn Prize for Inanna, which then went on to win the 2010 Francesca Primus Prize. And Michelle was also a finalist for the 2010 Steinberg ATCA New Play Award for Inanna and for Victoria Musica. It was the first time in the award's 33-year history that a playwright has been independently nominated for two plays in one season. I saw Inanna at the 2010 Contemporary American Theater Festival in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, where it was directed by the festival's founder, Ed Herendine. I was eager to speak with Michelle Lowe and caught up with her later that summer in New York City. I spoke with her in an apartment overlooking Broadway, so you'll occasionally hear the sound of New York City traffic. I began our conversation with Inanna. I asked Michelle for a thumbnail sketch of that play. Inanna is the story of a curator from Mosul in Iraq, northern Iraq, who flees to London on the eve of the American invasion in 2003 
and he takes with him four mysterious suitcases, his bride of four hours, and in the course of one night, they will or will not fall in love and save the world. <laughs> not to put too fine no. a point on it. <laughs> and it, it's certainly a very political play, though it's not driven by politics. Politics is embedded in it. Yes. What drew you to this? I've always had an interest in stolen art. I studied it in, in school. I think it, it happened that when I read about the art that had been stolen by the Nazis during World War II, I became very interested in that. And I was always looking for someplace to put my passion for stolen art into a piece of work. And I never found it. Then when we invaded Iraq, I found it. And I wanted at that time, I was commissioned by Denver Center Theater. I wanted to write a love story. I thought that it was time for me to look at that. And here was the context that I could put a love story and my feelings about the invasion, which I thought was pretty botched. And the looting that ensued shortly after we went into Iraq was wholesale and horrible. And it was a way for me to take what I wanted to do and put a place and a time and a love story around it. And what I wanted to do was say that this was not done right. We made a mistake. How we left everything open and did not protect the world's legacy, which happens to be partly in Iraq. How long from the germ of the idea to seeing it mounted at its premiere? I was commissioned by Denver in 2005, Actually, I was commissioned in 2006. It took me three months to write the first draft. I then sent it off to Denver, and we talked about what would happen if we started to uh, think about putting it into the Colorado New Play Summit. Since I think it was 2005, the Colorado New Play Summit has happened every February, and it's where Denver Center Theater puts up four or five plays. They do readings, and from that, they often choose what they will produce the next year. So it's, it's a terrific opportunity for writers. And they had started commissioning, and they had commissioned me. And I wrote Inanna. Starting in August, I was lucky enough to get a reading with Denver Center's permission at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis. We did a reading there of this Middle Eastern play with eight actors who were white and game and wonderful. And I spent a weekend working on it there. And then it was accepted into the Hartford Stages brand new festival, which I did in November of that year. And I started to cast in earnest for a production. And then it was part of the Colorado New Play Summit in 2008. And we produced it in 2009. So it was a journey of some time. And like all things you put your passion into, it just takes the time it's supposed to take. Well, how does it work? How many drafts did you go through? I killed off a lot of characters, I have to say. Every time I did a new draft, somebody died in it. And I researched and researched. I had mounds of research. Thank God for the internet. I never could have written this play had it not been for the internet because there was so little information about what it was like to live in Iraq during Saddam's era, all of those decades. But little by little, as I worked on Inanna, more information was coming out. And so I had all this research. And when you have this much, you want to put it all in. You want to just get it all in there. And, of course, it didn't belong in there. So little by little, I was able to take some out and yet keep the heart of the play in there and really synthesize it down to its most important 
stories. And there is more than one story. It's a thriller. It's a love story. It's a story about art. It's a story about an impending invasion. And there's a lot of history in there. So I had to figure out a way to balance all of that. Otherwise, the story that you want to tell never really gets told. It gets, gets too vague. And so it took time to get it done. I'm really interested in this process because I would imagine the first time you actually hear it in the mouths of other people. Oh, it was huge. You see it differently almost immediately. Yes, and going and finally getting a cast that was Middle Eastern was a big jump in my learning curve as well. Our cast in Colorado at the Denver Center Theater for the production, we had cast members from Lebanon, from Saudi Arabia, from India, from Egypt. And so I was learning a lot when I got all those people around the table. I've never been to Iraq. I've uh, never been to the Middle East. I have many friends from the Middle East. But to to sit around the table and get their input into not only the politics but the language was invaluable to the process. And the director. How oh, important my director. is the director? Michael Pressman was terrific. He had directed Come Back Little Sheba recently on Broadway, and he wanted to do another play. Uh, he wanted to do a new play, and I was introduced to him, and we hit it off immediately. He really understood what I was trying to, to do with Inanna, and he understood the heart of it. And he and I had a terrific collaboration and started working right away before we even did the new play summit in 2008. We were working on it. Inanna was a very different play for me in a lot of ways. With Inanna, it was the first time I sat there in a preview. I would always sit and look at my plays and, and never think I got it quite right, that there were moments where I would cringe and say, oh, God, that doesn't work. I'll have to fix that at some point. And I don't always get around to fixing it. Something else comes up, and I have to address that. So when I did Inanna in Denver, it was a very special experience for me because it was the first time where I sat through a preview and I thought maybe, just maybe, I got it right. And that was exquisite for me. That was just a feeling I'd never, ever had before. And it was good for my soul. That's great. That's lovely when that happens. It doesn't happen very often. Okay, so now here's my second question because I'm, I'm just so fascinated by process. It was also one of the plays in the Contemporary American Theater Festival right. in Shepherdstown, and it was its second run. Did the play change a lot from Denver to Shepherdstown? One of the great things that happened after it premiered in Denver was that I got to meet one of my heroes, Donnie George was the former head of the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad. And I met him for the first time after reading and studying him for years. It was like meeting your superhero, the one person in the world you want to meet. I finally got to meet him, and he read the play. And we went to lunch, and we spent three hours together. And it was hugely informative. And it was wonderful for me, too, because he was able to tell me that I got it right and that is something that any author who deals with history and contemporary politics wants to hear. And through Donnie, I was able to make some changes in the names of the characters, that the names that I had chosen weren't exactly right for these characters. And so one of the biggest changes was that I had to change the name of my lead character. He was Darius in Colorado, and in Shepherdstown, he became Yassine. And that was one of the biggest changes. How important is the set? 
one of the great things about Shepherdstown too was I was not able to achieve visually the ending that I had seen in my head when I wrote Inanna. And because of the stage constraints in Denver, we had a beautiful ending. It was just great. It was just lovely for its situation. But what ended up happening when Ed Herendine and I met to discuss the production in Shepherdstown. And he also directed Inanna in Shepherdstown. Correct. He was wonderful in asking me, is there anything you want me to pay attention to that maybe you couldn't achieve that you, when you went back to, to look at it again, because I did go back after two weeks after the premiere, I went back to see it again in, in Denver. Is there something else that maybe you saw or wanted to try? And I said, yes. Is there any way that we could look at the ending a little bit differently physically? At the end of Inanna, the two characters in their minds go back to Iraq from London. And we did this beautifully through light and sound in Denver, but I wanted to make it more of a statement, a more physical statement. And what happened in Shepherdstown was exactly how I had seen it, which was they literally go back to Iraq. The stage splits in half, and physically it is a dramatic change. And it was something that I didn't know that was going to happen. They were very excited when I went to Shepherdstown and said, there's a big thing going to happen at the end of the play. We won't tell you what it is, but where do you see it? So I saw it opening night, and I was thrilled. I was just thrilled because it was so dramatic and it was exactly what I'd hoped for. So that was a big change for me too, to see what I had imagined on written actually happen. And it worked. You're thrilled when it works. I'm always struck in theater by how many pieces there are, what collaboration it is. I mean, it's the vision certainly of you as the playwright, but then it's the vision of the director that oh, has sure. to be married to the vision of the sure. designer, which, oh, yes. and God forbid we forget the actors. With this show, I spoke to Shepherdstown's costume designer, to the CATF costume designer at length about how Western the costume should be, how Middle Eastern. That was very important to uh, realizing the show. Speaking about the art that's portrayed on stage, we see the statue of Inanna, and just how much uh, Donnie George was also very, very wonderful about looking at the statue that we had used in Denver and giving me some more pointers when we do it again, which we did in Shepherdstown, what changes we could make on the statue of Inanna. So the sound design, too, was very, very important to me. How we used music, sound effects. A lot of Inanna happens in flashback and how we could use sound to indicate flashbacks and make it as smooth as possible was really important. And the lighting, for the same reason, was very, very important, going in and out of the flashback scenes, realizing the end. These were all people that were very, very involved. I mean, you're always involved with the the designers whenever you do a play, a new play in particular. But these people were really, really important to Inanna in both Denver and in Shepherdstown. And I was very close to all of them. Now, there's Victoria Musica. Yes. Were you working on these simultaneously? <laughs> yes, I was. Actually, it got a little crazy <laughs> there. It got a little crazy, but it, but it worked. As I said, it usually takes me three months to write a first draft. And I came home and wrote Victoria Musica in two and a half months. I had written a draft and the year before. And Ed Stern at Cincinnati Playhouse was very keen on doing it, but I needed to do another draft of it. And I 
landed from Denver and had to do that next draft and get it ready for production, which was in September. It was an incredible year, 2009, for me, just because to have two world premieres was just the most thrilling year for me. It, it just was incredible. It was, it was hard, but it was an embarrassment of riches as well. Well, tell us a little bit about Victoria Musica. Sure. I'm always very interested in themes of identity. And this is the story of a music critic who works in London for a magazine very much like Gramophone. And he wakes up one morning to find out that Victoria Wedlin, a very famous cellist, has died. And this cellist I've created is on par with Yo-Yo Ma. Everyone in the world loves this woman, except for him. And so he's encouraged by his editor to go back and listen to all 27 of her recordings that she put out on Sony. Because she was ill for 12 years, she had not been seen in the public eye, but had only been heard. And he goes back and listens to Victoria on these 12 CDs. And when he's finished, he decides that she was a fraud and that all of these CDs were manipulated and faked. He doesn't know how, but it In his gut, this is what he believes. And so this is the story of how he risks everything, including his life. Uh, Loses his job, his health, to find out whether he's right or he's wrong. And the parallel story that runs is the story of Victoria and her husband and what happened 15 years before that influenced what she did with her career and these recordings. So I had to learn a lot about cello music, boy. Uh, again. <laughs> so I was in Iraq. I was, lear- I was in London a lot in 2009, all in my head, and learning a lot about uh, cellos. What drew you to this? Because I'm interested in questions of identity, it seemed that the, the years before, there had been all these people out there, from Bernie Madoff to James Fry, Joyce Haddo, all of these, these people who had come forward with these false identities and had created these other people that they said were themselves and expected us to believe them at their word, that we would trust that these were these people. Why wouldn't we believe that Bernie Madoff was a really great guy and a wonderful investor? And why wouldn't we think that James Fry had created something that he said was true and yet had borrowed and and was really fiction? And Joyce Haddo, who was a pianist, who had had created all these, these recordings that she had manipulated, or her husband rather had manipulated. And I was really interested in those people that feel that they have to hide behind or create other identities and who we were as part of their audience, what role we played in their creation. And so I really, really, I had a really good time creating these other characters and putting forth a story that, that I believe was really also, I think people have done this through centuries. I think that we've always been around people that were even beyond chameleons, they were creating other selves. But it just seemed that in the last couple of years that there were just a lot of them. So different from Inanna. Yes, so different from Inanna. Less political, but nevertheless from my head. Clearly art interests yes. you. Oh my goodness, yes. I am not a painter. I am not a, uh, an illustrator. I cannot draw. In fact, there's a line in, in a play of mine, Map of Heaven, and there's a line that one of the characters says. He says, my... People look like wolves. When he draws, his people look like wolves, and that's me. I cannot draw at all. And my artistic vision is only in words. And so it's something that really fascinates me because I can't do it. (laughs) I just can't do it. I have no vision for what any piece of art of mine would look like. So I create people 
who do have artistic vision. Again, Map of Heaven, the leading lady, is an artist. She makes maps of places that don't exist. So for me, it's a way to to pretend, maybe, to say, oh my goodness, if I was going to be an artist, if I was going to be a musician, I've always loved the cello. I think it's so sexy, and I think its sound is so rich and so beautiful. So if I were going to play an instrument, I would play the cello. And if I was going to be a painter, I would paint maps of places that don't exist. So for me, this is my way of, it's not even a fantasy. I guess it's my own reinvention of myself, but I'm not putting myself out there. I'm putting myself in my plays. (laughs) Your plays have been produced all around the country. Yes. You really are wedded to regional theater, I think, in a very profound way. How do you get your plays produced in so many different parts of the United States, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Florida, Colorado. I like the regions. I mean, yes, I love New York, and I love to be produced in New York. There's something about the regions that most artists, I think, would tell you that's a little more forgiving, that audience members come in and they want to like your show. They don't come in with an axe to grind. They really want to listen and They're also very well educated. The theaters that are doing new plays, like Denver Center, like City Theater in Pittsburgh, like Florida Stage, like Hartford Stage, those theaters are really amassing playwrights, but they're really pulling together new plays. And they're telling their audience, look, it's really important that we look at the classics, but it's even more important that we add to the American theater canon. And they pull in playwrights like myself, who are doing new work, and introduce me to their audience. Very often, I will come in and do a reading of a play before it's produced. That happened in Denver. I did a reading of Good on Paper before I was commissioned. And from that, I established a relationship with Denver Center. Florida Stage has produced two of my plays. City Theater, also two of my plays. North Coast Rep out in California. So these theaters tend to bring me in. They tend to welcome me in a way that's really, really lovely. And these audiences are really smart, and I really like them. And it's really nice to go back. For example, I go back to Denver now, and I'm I'm starting to recognize people in the audience who have been with me for five years as my work has evolved. And it's wonderful. I like working in the regions. It sounds like you're able to develop more of a relationship with not just the theater company, but with the audience themselves. I think so, yes. I I think so. I have relationships here in New York with primary stages and various producers, commercial producers here in town. And the relationships that I have outside of New York in the regions, they're very important to me, and I love working there. I don't mind schlepping either. I enjoy it. Now, you've had work produced on Broadway. Yes, and off-Broadway, yes. Is it... Not better, worse, but oh, just it's different. Different. Can you sure it's talk different. about the differences? Well, New York audiences, people will tell you, are very different. There's more at stake, obviously, when you're on Broadway. There's money. You also have to generate your own audience when it's a commercial production. The lovely thing about being in a regional theater is you have a subscription base, so you have an audience every night. When you go on Broadway, you have to generate that audience every night. You have to do it with advertising and press. And the variables are such that you really don't know what you have until you're up and going. Do you think regional theater is sometimes overlooked, is a cradle for contemporary playwrights? I don't think it's overlooked. I think more and more regional theaters are hoping to move their productions. 
I think that they also would like a piece of New York. We all would like a piece of New York. It's in our DNA to want that. I think that many regional theaters are still hoping that when they do have a big success, that the show will come to New York in some manner. I think there's a lot of great new plays being done out there. I think many, many new plays that you do see in New York now are being brought from the regions, or at least the writers are being brought from the regions in a big way. You have a degree in journalism. I do. From Northwestern. I graduated from Medill, went to Northwestern, I went to J School, and I actually started off in the business, uh, in the advertising business, many, many years ago. So I was not a reporter, I was in the advertising business. But I think deep down, I always wanted to be a reporter. I just didn't have the guts to do it. And I was just talking to another friend of mine last night, actually, another playwright. And we were both saying that one of the things that we love to do is interview people, as well as do the research, if the play calls for research. And more and more my plays do call for research. And if I wasn't a playwright, I would probably have been a reporter. Uh, I would have gotten around to doing that. Because I love to talk to people and find out what's in their head. And I, I need these people in order to give my work an authenticity that's necessary to the play. How did you move to playwriting? Right, and advertising. I was in advertising business um, for a number of years, and I always wanted to write theater and had done it on the side. And I started getting these flyers from Playwrights Horizons Theater School. And I would look at them longingly and think, oh, if I only could have the time to do something like that. But when when I was in the advertising business, you worked seven days a week. The, The big line was, if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. I mean, you really worked hard. You really worked. And there was no time for anything else in my life. And I finally got to a point where I didn't want to continue in the business. I was being groomed for a big job, and I didn't want the big job. I didn't want to continue on. What I really wanted to do at that stage was learn my craft, learn the craft of being a playwright. And so I cut a very good deal with the agency that I was working for, and I worked Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. I ran a big piece of business as an associate creative director and writer, and Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, I went to Playwrights Horizons Theater School. I wrote. I locked myself up in my apartment, and I learned to be a playwright. And eventually, I stopped working in the advertising business, and here I am. What was the first piece of yours that you saw on a stage? The first piece I saw, I wrote a play. I had done pieces of, of things, uh, showcases, et cetera, et cetera, through Pirates Horizon Theater School, which, by the way, was absorbed into Tisch. It's now part of NYU Tisch. The first play that I wrote was a play called Hit the Lights. I was commissioned by Bob Moss, who was the founder of Playwrights Horizons, to write a children's play for the Hangar Theater. And I said, Bob, you're crazy. There's no way I can write a children's play. I mean, my language tends to be a little provocative. And, and he said, I know, I know. Just, just try it. Try it. And on the back of a brown paper bag walking down the street, I outlined a play called Hit the Lights. And I knew that kids liked music, but I didn't have time to find a composer or musicians. We, we were going to do this quick. So I wrote it in verse. I wrote this play, Hit the Lights, in verse. We produced it at the Hangar Theater, and I got very nervous during the production because all the kids, when we did it, were so quiet. And Bob said, no, 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 that's a good thing when they're quiet. That means they're listening. And I said, oh, okay. A year later, I decided I was going to find a composer after all, and it was a fairy tale. It was a fable that I had written. 
and I put music to it, kept it in verse, wrote some songs with, with a composer, and had the audacity to send it to the National Music Theater Conference, run by Paulette Hapt at the O'Neill. And by some craziness that I never really imagined, they accepted it, and I was part of the National Music Theater Conference with Hit the Lights, this 35-minute children's piece, got tremendous support around it, started a relationship with Paulette Haupt that continues to this day. She's a tremendous, tremendous mentor of mine, just a, a wonderful person in my life, just has been great, and subsequently, a couple of years ago, commissioned me to write another piece that I did with Scott Richards that was done uh, in New York. And Hit the Lights was the first play that I got to see with a A-list cast at the O'Neill. It was a workshop, and it got me my agent, and it started me off. Do you listen to music while you work? I do. Very frequently, I do. What do you listen to? Everything that could possibly have to do with what I'm working on. For example, when I was working on Inan, I was, I was listening to a lot of Middle Eastern music. And anything I could get my hands on, I would call friends and say, send me stuff. Music is a very, very big part of my life and has only gotten more important in my life. And music is very, very important to the work that I'm doing. What's fun about that is a sound designer, a good sound designer like Lindsay Jones, who I worked with on, on Inanna, the first thing he'll say to me, okay, what do you got? What were you listening to? What's in your head? And we'll never, ever use what's in my head, but he'll get a, he'll get a sense of what the music is of the play. Um, not just of the language of the play, but the music of the play. And then he takes that and just brings his own sense to that. And it's just so thrilling for me to hear his vision. I, I never have thought about directing my own work for that very reason. I want to hear someone else's thoughts. I want to see someone else's vision. It's like when you're in a room and you hear an actor do a line that you never heard that way in your head, but it's so much better. And you think, my goodness, that's fantastic. Can we keep that? Can we do that? Let's, let's do it like that. That was exciting. That was different from what I imagined. And I'm always thinking somebody else can make what I do so much better. I'm just the beginning of what I'm doing. I'm just the, the start. And for me, the really exciting part is, is working with such good people who bring so much of themselves to it that it, it grows. And it becomes even more special than what I dreamed. Michelle Lowe, thank you so much. Thank you. This is fun. That was playwright Michelle Lowe. Michelle Lowe's latest play, The Break, is a musical written with composer Scott Davenport Richards. The Break is about to begin a three-week workshop at the Signature Theater. It's part of Signature's 2124 program the American Musical Voices Project, Next Generation. The public will be able to catch two performances of the break at the Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia, on September 1st and 2nd. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The music was written and performed by guitarist Jorge Hernandez, used courtesy of Mr. Hernandez. Excerpt from Inanna, Use courtesy of Michelle Lowe and the Contemporary American Theater Festival in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, veteran and author Richard Curry discusses Tim O'Brien's novel, The Things They Carried. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. 
For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.